This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Uh, Good morning. If I've not had an opportunity to meet you before, my name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here Grace Church. It is uh, great to have you with us. And if this is your first time, you picked a great Sunday because we're starting a new series today. And it's a summer series, and I love this graphic, A Summer in Philippians, that uh, Meg uh, prepared for us. It doesn't look like that outside, does it? So I just thought, how ironic that we are starting our summer, warm, sunny series on a day like this, but we've got sunshine on a cloudy day. So we're going to open our Bibles to the book of Philippians, and uh, we are going to jump in, uh, jump into this. Uh, To let you know how excited I am, I've been studying Philippians, and yesterday I'm preparing for today, and I have my Bible out in front of me, and this is what happens. It comes out. I mean, so this is a really good sign to you. Uh, You should have high expectations. You don't want a shortstop with a brand new glove. You want it broken in, you want some dirt and some spit in it. This guy has worked hard with his glove, and so I've just been burning through Philippians such that it's coming apart in my Bible, and so I will be getting a new Bible because I can't teach with uh, pages flying everywhere. So I've been reading it to the point that it's falling out, and uh, I trust the Lord will help us. I probably shouldn't have said that because that creates an, an, a, a too high of an expectation. Yeah, this could be a dud of a sermon, and you'll say, wow, all that work for nothing. But um, <laughs> let's, let's uh, read Philippians 1 and 2. We're only going to go through the first two verses today because this is going to be, I want to give an overview of the book and uh, give you some key themes that are going to show up in the book. And amazingly, they show up in the first two verses. Some of them do. So here it is. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today and we thank you for your word which always speaks truth to us, your word which reveals Jesus to us, your word which has the power to convert us and to change us. So we just start today by thanking you for your word and we ask that as we open this study of this book of, uh, this warm book of joy, Uh, in the midst of trial, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you would, um, Lord, open our hearts in a fresh way. Lord, many of these verses would be familiar to some in our church, and we pray that none of us would be overly familiar, but that you would show us new things through your word, and that you would reveal yourself to us, Lord, and and that you would... uh, that, Lord, you would stir in us a fresh love for Christ, a fresh love for your people, um, and that your Holy Spirit would really minister to us. So, Lord, we invite you. We need your joy. This is a book about joy. We confess we need joy in our souls, not the shallow, surface-level joy that the world provides, but we need real, true, lasting joy that, 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 that walks, that it holds us uh, in, in shakable times. We need unshakable joy in shakable times, we pray, Lord. So, Give that to us through your word that we may respond for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, in this opening, uh, this is a really typical opening. Uh, letters, uh, letters during this time had a standard sort of opening like we would. So we would write a letter and say, dear so-and-so, uh, I hope this letter finds you doing well or something. So we might say something like that. This is a very conventional um, type of opening for a letter where really three things are accomplished. The sender of the letter is identified. The recipients of the letter are identified. And then typically there's some kind of statement like grace to you. That's really common. And so Paul does that. But he does a lot more than that. This is more than a greeting. He gives us more than, here's who this is from, uh, here's who it's to, and grace. I I think he does more than that that that, that gets to what we're going to see throughout the letter. So in the opening, we see who he is, and then we get some, some sort of the purpose of the letters being revealed here. So I was thinking about an illustration, thinking, well, it's kind of like if we write a letter, and I thought, uh, none of us write letters, so better look for another illustration that might have worked 20 years ago. Um, but here's an, So I thought, what do we do? And I thought, this is actually better than a letter. It's an email. And when you receive an email, it's very much like the introduction here. So I went and looked at my inbox yesterday, and, uh, which is sadly nowhere near zero. And uh, some of you are going, yeah, I know. You, I'm waiting for your response, so it's coming. Uh, and each of my emails says who it's from, and then there is a line, a, a subject line. And these first few verses work as a subject line. So you can look at who it's from and the subject line, and that will either pique your interest in the email or that will... Uh, that that will diminish your interest in the email. So I opened mine up. Here's some of the first ones I saw that have not been responded to in my inbox. I saw one from someone. I'm I'm not going to tell you who these are from, but one from someone, and this was the subject, confidential. Whoa, confidential. So someone is writing me an email and communicating something to me in confidence. So that says something, doesn't it? That that says something about what's going to come. This is confidential. Okay, that means this is important, and, uh, and, and this is perhaps personal, or at least something that I'm to share with that person. Here's another one I saw. I opened up, and I'm not going to tell you who it's from, but this is the subject line. Your receipt number 12307724 Isn't that warm? I mean, so I see that email... <laughs> And this isn't like, okay, I know this is not from my wife, or this isn't from a close friend. This is so generic. This, is, this means nothing. I can't, your receipt number, and then 15 digits. Okay, I'll tell you. It was from iTunes, from an app I bought from my iPhone. So I'm looking at it like this is not personal at all. So that really tells me something. It really tells me something about it. So I'm very interested in confidential. I need to know this. I'm very disinterested in receipt number 12077, blah, blah, blah. This is one I saw someone came to me. Here's the subject line, follow up. Now, follow up, depending on who it's from, could be really important. Or it could be really unimportant. If it's from the place I get my oil changed that always sends me a follow-up to do a survey, which I never do, then I don't care. But if it's from the person it was from that we had had a very important conversation and he was following up with some more information from our conversation. Oh, that one matters because of who it was from. Because of who it was from. Here's one I got. I have no idea how I got on this mailing list. I'm telling you everyone who they're from. And I said I wasn't. Here we go. This one said, Father's Day is around the corner. Reserve your table today. 
Now, that, that's the subline. Now, here, I don't know how I got on their mailing list. This was from Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. So I forwarded that to my kids. Uh, reserve your table today. And I'm very interested in that email, and I'll let you know how that all goes. And lastly, here was my subject line that I want to share with you, and this is also an announcement. This was the subject line, Grace Church Daily Digest. That's your daily digest from the city. I know many of you are on the edge of your seat waiting for your daily digest. That's all the information that's happening at Grace Church from the city once a day at about 4 o'clock or whatever. That one was important to me, and I hope it's important to you. So, who it's from and then what it's about signals to us something. And this introduction to this letter would have meant very much to the readers. First of all, because who it's from who it's from. It is from Paul. And so they would have been listening to this letter. It wouldn't have been written and passed out. Everybody didn't have a Bible. You would have come to church to worship at Philippi, and someone would have stood up, one of the elders would have stood up and read Paul's letter to you. And so they would have been sitting at the edge of their seats. Why? Because first of all, Paul founded the church. Paul is their spiritual father. So they're receiving a letter. We want to think about this as we go through it. They're receiving a letter from the person who founded the church. Now, if you were here last year, we studied the book of Acts. And we spent a whole Sunday talking about how Paul founded the Philippian church. And so I just want to remind you of how this church started. It'll give us some background to the letter. So it's not just Paul, hey, I heard about the Philippians. I'll write them. No, here's how this church got started. In Acts 16, Paul has a vision. This happens, a supernatural vision that God speaks to him. And a man's in the vision, and the man says, come over to Macedonia and help us. So Paul goes to Macedonia, and the first city he comes to is Philippi. It's a Roman colony. It's a very Roman city. They have a lot of pride because the Roman Empire is the strongest empire in the world, and they're part of Rome. Their culture is very Roman, and so they, this is the kind of city. It's a city. It's a major city, and yet they do not have a synagogue. Everywhere Paul went, he started out in the Jewish synagogue preaching the Bible, but they don't have any Jewish synagogue because it took a, either 10 or 12, I forget, I think 10 Jewish males to start a synagogue. So this is a major city that doesn't have 10 Jewish males in it. So what does Paul do? He always goes to the synagogue. What does he do? He goes outside the city. He finds a woman's prayer meeting, a women's prayer meeting. They're praying. He tells them about Jesus. And this lady named Lydia, who's a business owner, she gets converted. And her whole household gets converted. And she says, would you come to my house? And that her house becomes the place that the church meets. So someone's converted and a church is started in this, lady, this businesswoman's house, Lydia. And so then after that, Paul is there, they're, they're ministering. And this, I mean, Acts is so exciting. This demonized girl, she's a slave. She's a slave girl and she's possessed by a demon. True story. And so she is following Paul around and saying, these, this, 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 uh, Paul and Silas, they are from the Most High God. So she's just making all these statements about them. So one day Paul turns and casts the demon out of her. And that's a big problem for her owners because she was owned as a slave girl who was a fortune teller. And once she had no demons, she couldn't tell fortunes. And so they were out of business. She was free, presumably met the Lord, uh, but their business was sunk. So they go to Paul and Silas. They take them before the magistrates. They, they lie about them. The magistrates say, you are busted. They beat them severely and throw them in jail. 
This is all happening in Philippi. This is how the church begins. And so while they're in jail, at midnight, they are singing to the Lord. They're singing, this, which goes a lot with this, this story of Philippians, because Paul has joy in prison. Okay, he's in prison, he has joy, he's singing, and an earthquake comes. Earthquake comes, and it opens all the doors, shakes the doors loose, and so all the prisoners can run free. This is fascinating. So the jailer says, I'm going to be killed, because all the prisoners are going free. So the jailer pulls out a sword, he's about to commit suicide. And Paul says, stop, stop, stop preaches the gospel to him, the jailer becomes a Christian, they go to his house, all his family becomes a Christian, they all get baptized, they wash Paul's wounds, take care of him, amazing. And then the next day the magistrates say, get out of town. And so Paul and Silas leave, asking the magistrates to accompany them out of town, and uh, they, they leave town. So that's how this church starts. A businesswoman outside of town at a prayer meeting, a demonized slave girl and a jailer and, and, the, and his family. That's how the church gets started. Now, 10 or 12 years later, Paul's writing him a letter. Why is he writing him a letter? Because this church supported Paul financially. So Paul would go out to other, start churches, and these people would send him money. The Philippians were the only people in Macedonia, uh, Macedonia to send him uh, money. And so this guy named Epaphroditus brings him money, and so now he's sending Epaphroditus back, and he's writing them a letter to tell them how he's doing. So he founds their church with all that drama that I described to you. 10 to 12 years later, he's in prison again, in a Roman prison, and he's awaiting execution. Uh, so he, he doesn't know that, but he'll probably be, he, he will be executed. So he's in a Roman prison and he's writing back to them 10 or 12 years later. So that's a lot of detail, but that's how it got started, and that's the circumstance. So they are listening. They're getting a letter from the guy who founded the church. They're getting a letter from the guy they supported and sent Epaphroditus to him. Now he's coming back with a report. And lastly, they'd be listening to him because Paul is in prison and he is facing potential execution. He's gonna talk about, I don't know if I'm gonna live or die. It's to die as gain, to live as Christ, to die as gain. So we would listen very carefully to the words of someone who's about to die for his faith. This isn't just some carefree guy shooting out an email, yo, what's up? No, no, this is serious. He's sending a letter that has to do with how they can live for the Lord, how they can know Christ. Um, he, he's writing that to them from a jail cell, from prison. So they would really, really be listening. So that's who it's from. It's from Paul, and he is with Timothy. Now, what's it about? What, what is the intro about? Where is he giving this reserve your table now, or follow up, the subject lines I gave you? Where is he giving a subject line? Here's how he's giving a subject line. He is talking about Christ repetitively in his greeting, and he's talking about our connection to Christ. Look what he says, three phrases. Paul and Timothy are, one, servants of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus. He's writing to whom? To all the saints in Christ Jesus. We haven't even finished the first verse, and we see he's already emphasizing Jesus and their connection and his connection to them. And verse two, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he gives this grace, but he doesn't just say grace to you, it's grace from Christ, from the Father, and from Christ. So these three phrases he emphasized, servants of Christ, 
saints in Christ, grace and peace from Christ. They really form what he's going to talk about in, in some ways throughout this letter. And what he's going to show is that it's important that we understand our relationship to Christ. It's important that we understand our identity in Christ. To be a faithful follower of Jesus, we must understand our standing with Christ, our connection to Jesus, our relationship with our Savior. We must understand that because that will inform all of our Christian life. Faithful service to Christ comes from understanding our identity in Christ. We have a lot of ways of evaluating our identity. But if you're a Christian, the, most, the core level of your identity is that you are in Christ. You're loved by Christ. You're forgiven by Christ. You're connected to Jesus. You're in union with Jesus. This is the most important thing about you. You may have other identities. You may be a, uh, you may be a female. That's an identity. You may be a father. That's an identity. You may be an engineer. That's an identity. You may be a sports fan. That's an identity. You may be a Texan. That's an identity you should wear proudly. So you may, you may have any number of identities, but there's no identity that defines you like Christ and your connection with him. And that's what Paul does here. Paul is going to show that his connection in Christ informs how he relates and does everything, particularly how he lives in joy. The book has a lot about joy, but joy comes from our identity in Christ. And so faithful service to Christ comes from understanding our identity in Christ. What's Paul's first statement about identity in Christ? Number one, servants of Christ. He says, we are servants of Christ. Now, in the ESV Bible, which is the one I'm using, I don't know if it does this in the NIV, but in the ESV, there's a note by servants, and if you look, a number one, and if you look down at the bottom, the footnote says slaves. Slaves. So is it servant or slave? I mean, there's a big difference in our mind, in our culture. We might say to someone, oh, you're such a servant, and we would mean that in, an, in a... Um, likely, in a Christian context, we mean that in a complimentary way. You're such a servant. Uh, or thank you for serving me. You know, oh, thank you for doing that. I really appreciate that, that you really served me. Thank you. But if we use this word slave, it'd be different. You'd never say to someone, oh, thank you for being my slave. You would never say that because of all the, all the, all the uh, emotional overtones to that. You would say, hey, thank you for serving. Thank you for being a servant. Is it servant or is it slave? Because in our context, it would mean two different things. And it would in the Roman context too. Uh, so we use the word servant a lot. We don't tend to use the word slave. But in the Roman context, when they would have heard this, it would have meant more slave than servant. Because a slave, there was differing levels of slavery, so slaves had differing levels of freedom. Some of them could actually own property. Some of them could actually manage assets. So there was different levels of slaves, but here's what they all had in common, is that they were owned by someone else. And that's what Paul's saying. He's not saying, hey, we're servants like your server that's going to bring your nachos to the table for lunch today at the restaurant. He's not talking about that kind of servant. He's not talking about, oh, wow, you're a great servant, man. You came early and set up the chairs. Thank you for doing that. That is serving. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about being a slave who has no rights. He's talking about being a slave that is owned by someone else. That's what he's talking about. So he's saying... Paul and Timothy 
slaves of Christ Jesus. Paul and Timothy owned by Christ Jesus. Paul and Timothy whose lives are controlled by Jesus. Paul and Timothy who are submitted to Jesus. Paul and Timothy who give their lives to Christ who rules over their lives and controls all of their lives. Paul and Timothy who are slaves to another and that is Jesus. He's saying we're owned by Jesus. Now there's something about the way that sounds that can rub us the wrong way because we don't like to think of uh, well, slavery is an, an awful, obviously is an awful institution in our country's history. Uh, so we don't even like to think of slave, or it, it immediately has uh, terrible connotations, and it, and it should in any context but this. He's saying there's, 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 that we are slaves of Jesus. And, and there's, the reason this can rub us the wrong way is when we think of becoming a Christian, we think that's, the, we talk about that being liberating. Becoming a Christian means I'm free from, this, from slavery. So I went from slavery to freedom in coming to Christ. And now Paul is saying I'm a slave. So I, so I was enslaved, but now I'm still enslaved is what he's saying. I'm enslaved to Christ. Jesus does free us. Jesus does deliver us. Becoming a Christian is about freedom. It's about freedom from sin. It's about freedom from religious works. So if we're trying to do religious works to make ourselves right with God, it, coming to Christ frees us from that. We're free from the fear of death. We're free from the, the penalty of sin that we will face. So there is a great freedom that comes. And then there's also this great, uh, this great connection to Christ that we are now his servants, that we are now his slaves. And the reality is that everyone serves something or someone. In the late 70s, Bob Dylan wrote a song, you probably know it, uh, called You Gotta Serve Somebody. And it's a very, I went back and listened to it yesterday. I watched him perform it. It's, it's, very, it's a very insightful song. And the, re repeat, the repeated chorus at one line is, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. And that is absolutely true. Everyone serves somebody or something. So we by nature serve ourselves. We serve our comfort. We are slaves to our own pleasure. We live for the opinions of others or we live for money or we live for power or we live for revenge. We love our job or we uh, we are enslaved to our family. We, we have all of these kinds of things. We, we live for something or someone. But the person who is a slave of Christ is freed from all other slaveries. The person who is Christ's son or daughter, child, that'd be another, another identity, child of God, but that's not the one we're talking about right now. Uh, to be a slave of Christ, to, to walk under the ownership of Christ means that we're freed from all other ownerships. To know Christ and to be his slave means that we are free from the power of living under the opinions of others, the power of pleasing others, the power of money dominating our lives, the power of uh, illicit sex or lust, greed dominating our lives.
The power of bitterness towards the person that harmed us and sinned against us. See, being enslaved to Christ means that we can be freed from all those other slaveries. Jesus is perfectly good, perfectly loving, perfectly merciful, perfectly holy, perfectly kind. So to be his follower, to be owned by him is a great thing because it means that we have come back and we are in relationship to the God who created us. And his ownership over us means that he controls and commands us always for our good. Always for his glory and always for our good, for our joy, for our benefit. Even when he causes us to experience difficulty, it is ultimately for our good and for his glory. So being a servant of Christ, being a slave of Jesus is a glorious identity because it means that I can find life in him and I don't have to pursue other slaveries, other bondages, other, um, other idols. I don't have to pursue other things for joy and peace and life and meaning. I find them in Jesus because he has saved me and I am a follower of his. We all live for someone or something and the Christian is the person who has been freed from darkness and has been brought into light and into relationship with Jesus. Now, that all sounds sort of philosophical and uh, you know, theological. Why does that matter? Well, throughout this letter, Paul is gonna show his position as a slave of Christ brings great freedom in his life and brings great purpose to his life and brings great joy to his life. For instance, he's in prison. Look down at verses 12 through 14, verse chapter one still. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus died and rose for sinners. So what's happened to me, meaning that I'm imprisoned, it's really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, that's Caesar's guards, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Okay, so he's identifying himself as a slave of Christ. The Lord rules over my life. I'm, I'm doing the right thing, preaching the gospel. I get arrested. So that's, that's what the Lord has for my life right now. I'm in jail. But look at what is happening. Pete, the gospel is going forth. All the guards know about Jesus now. Isn't this wonderful? There are other people who say, wow, Paul's in prison. If he can preach the gospel in prison, I can tell my neighbor about Jesus. And so other people are getting boldness. They're bold to speak the word. If Paul can be imprisoned and speak the word, then I can share in with my family. So my imprisoning as a slave of Christ means that the good news, other people are hearing the good news. I'm not about myself. I'm about Christ, I'm about others meeting him. And guess what, therefore, I can sit in a prison cell and see the good of it. This isn't Pollyanna, this isn't, oh, the cup is half full. This is having a perspective that my life counts, my life matters, there's purpose in my suffering because I'm his servant, I'm his slave. The goal of my life is not just pure, my own comfort and pleasure, it is God's glory and there's tremendous joy in that. His glory and my joy go together. His gospel going forth and people being saved and freed and forgiven and receiving heaven, that's my joy. And so we see how even his mindset of being a prisoner, he's in jail, but he's freer than everyone who's guarding him. 
He's the freest man there. The man who is in chains, and yet his soul is free. His heart is joyful. He's content where he is. He's the freest man. He's freer than the guard who will go home at night and do whatever he wants. Free. So he's, his slavery means his freedom. His slavery in Christ means his freedom. Or look down at verse 21, still in chapter 1. See this theme again. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He may die. And so he's saying, whether I live or die, if I live, it's more of Jesus. If I die, that's a gain. Verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So what's he saying here? He's saying, look, I'm in prison, I'm the Lord's. It's going to be great either way. Again, this isn't Pollyanna. This is a man rooted in his identity, his identity as someone owned by the loving, gracious master Jesus. So I'm in prison. It could go two ways. If I live, more Jesus. That's good for you because I'm going to be able to come back to you, help you. I'm going to tell more people about Christ. So that's good. But if I die, that's gain because I get to go be with him personally. And so I'm, I'm free. Whatever, I have the Lord, however. That, that's what he's saying. I have the Lord, however. And he's saying, for me to continue living, it means... It, that, that means your progress and joy in the faith. If I do stick around, then I get to help you know Christ more and grow in your faith, and I get to help you experience joy. So that'd be really good. I'd like to stick around because you could know what I'm experiencing. See, his identity, when you know your identity, and we're going to look at two other identities. There's all kinds of identities in the, in the, in the Bible we're not going to look at today. I mentioned one, child of God, new creation, uh, there's many identities, but, but this, the, these three that he's giving us, or these two that he's giving us today is what we're looking at. So this slave of Christ, it, it affects how he looks at everything. My, at everything. my life is not my own. Or look at uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. They had sent him some more help. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. He's talking about finances here, by the way. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Okay, so Paul is saying... I'm sure Paul would be happier to have a cozy bed to sleep in than a concrete floor. I'm sure he'd be happier uh, feasting with friends than taking a beating in Macedonia by the magistrates. So he's not saying that, hey, it's just as great uh, circumstantially. No. But what he is saying is whether it's going great or whether it's going terrible, I've learned the secret of being content. I mean, that's what I want. Don't you want that? I mean, that, that last week I said the richest person is the person who's happy and content with what they have. There are people that are loaded with money that want a little more and a little more, and they're chasing, chasing, they're discontent. And there are people that have very little. I've, in, in some of the travel I've had the opportunity to do and be in places where people are extremely 
poor. I've been in shanty-type areas where people are living in lean-tos, and I've been with Christians, and they're some of the happiest people I know. Why? Because they've learned what Paul has. I'm content. God is doing something in me that I can intend, and it starts with my identity. My identity is not king of my life. Paul didn't say, my identity is not captain of my fate, master of my soul, ruler of all. Because if that, my identity is not controller of everybody and everything. Listen, if you live to control everybody and everything, you will be miserable. And we all struggle with that, right? We want to control things. All I'm trying to say here is that when we have an appropriate expectation of what it means to be born again, have our sins forgiven, have the Holy Spirit comes into us, it means that our lives are under subject to Christ. And so we begin to say, whatever happens in life, the goal is the glory of God and the good of others, and I will find my joy in that. Here's the irony. I will not find my joy in pursuing my joy through stuff and things and controlling and having all my circumstances go my way. I will find my joy in in Christ's rule over my life and in my ability to be useful for him. That's why Paul is joyful in a cell. That's why Paul says, thanks for sending the money. I'm really appreciative. But it wasn't as if I wasn't going to make it or die. I've, I've learned how to be content. I mean, this, is, this is obviously challenging stuff, but it's, it's a, it, I'm not giving five steps to joy today. I'm just trying to show that identity leads to uh, ultimately our, our joy. And that's what Paul talks about. In here. As a matter of fact, in chapter 3, when we get there, we're going to see Paul say this that I was the most impressive religious guy there was, basically. So, all the real, I had everything going for me in this culture. I had everything going for me. And all that, then I met Christ and I lost all that. All that is rubbish. It's trash. It's, it's maybe worse than that. Uh, it, it, it's, it means nothing to me compared to knowing Jesus. If I, if I can know Jesus, all that other stuff is a waste, is what he says. Well, that sounds kind of hyper-spiritual. Well, if we don't mean it and we're just tossing out religious platitudes, it is hyper-spiritual. But if Christ has gripped our hearts as his, and it affects us and it roots us, our identity in Christ roots us so that we can encounter all kinds of difficulty and experience joy as servants of Christ. It's also going to help the Philippians get along. It's a sunshine book, but there are some clouds. I guess there are a few clouds in the sky. There's some, some brewing division in the church. And uh, so in chapter two, he's going to talk about that, that if you're pursuing your own selfish ambition, it will b- lead to division and conflict in the church. But if you're like Christ and you give up your rights and he came and died for us so that we could be free, uh, if that's the case, then it'll build unity. So if Jesus is my Lord and you're good, if every one of us, and we can't do this, but if, this sign of heaven, but if every one of us could live, live perfectly and all of our motives and thoughts and actions were for God's glory and the good of other people, there would never be a conflict in the church. And that's heaven. So that's coming. But right now there's plenty of conflict, plenty of stuff, plenty of humans all over the place, plenty of challenges. But at least we want this vision that who I am in Christ as a slave of Christ affects how I view my life, how I act, what my goals are, what my ambitions are, where I find my joy. The secret of contentment. That's what Paul had found. Number two, he says, he writes to the saints in Christ. Still in verse one, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Now the word translated saints is the plural of the word holy. So he's saying, I'm writing to the holy ones in Philippi. Holy means, here's the root meaning of holy. Holy means to be separated or to be set apart. Now it also... um, 
can describe righteousness or moral, uh, you know, uh, moral goodness. Um, it also can, can reflect that as well. But it ultimately means set apart, and that's why we speak of God as holy. Because holy means to live in a different sphere. It means to be of a different order of things. It means morally perfect and righteous, yes, but it also means to be in a different order of things, a separate sphere. And, and Paul writes the Philippians and said, hey, Philippians, all y'all are holy. You're the holy ones. You are the ones who live in a different sphere. You're set apart. You're a different breed. You're, you're separated. You, you live in a, a you, you have a different reality. There's something fundamentally different about you and the rest of the world. You live according to a different of order of things. That's our identity. Most of us didn't walk in here today feeling that as our identity. And that's why we need to hear that when he says the saints in Philippi, the Philippians, it wasn't anything unique about them. He uses this term throughout the New Testament. If, if, he was, if Paul was alive writing today, he would say, hey, to the saints at Frisco. You say, well, who, that must be somewhere. Who's he talking to? Because we think of saints just as some super holy person, and that's a title we would only use for, you know, in, re- in the religious world, some people are called saints, obviously. Um, in the Catholic Church, people are called saints. Or we might use that word as a saying, oh, you have so much patience, I don't know how you do it, you're such a saint. That means you're a saint because you are un- you doing what I can never do by being patient. How do you put up with that? You are a saint. I can never do that. So for us, saint means superior uh, moral character. But he's calling everyone there a saint to all the saints. So we receive this two ways. One is it's an identity about us. God calls us the holy ones. Here's the thing. He also calls the person next to you and five rows behind you the holy one. So please note that. Uh, we want to we receive that for our own identity, but we want to question whether someone else deserves that. None of us deserve that. So how does he do this? How does he call them saints? Well, here's why. Because those who believe in Jesus, Jesus dies for our sins. He is buried. He's raised on the third day. And those who believe in Jesus, uh, he forgives all of our sins. And he gives us all his perfect righteousness. So if you believe in Jesus, the Bible says you're justified. What that means is you're right before God. All of your sins were put on Jesus and all of his righteousness is credited to you. So God looks at you today. This is your identity. I don't care what your, well, I do care. That sounds terrible. Does not matter what your feelings are today. That's a better way to say it. Does not matter what you feel today. Does not matter if it's hard for you to believe this. Here's what God says about you. God looks at you today and your position, your status before God is holy one in Christ. If you're a believer, you're connected to Christ, you're in Christ, and God welcomes you today to a throne of grace. Well, I blew it this week. I know you blew it. So did I. But God relates to us in the position of holy ones and welcomes us into his presence. This is our fundamental identity, and it is an amazing identity. They are saints in Christ. They are in union with Jesus. He is the vine, we are the branches, he said. In another place it says, he is the head, we are the the body. So what that means is we're connected to him, we receive our life from him, and because we're connected to him, our status 
is based on his as well. So when we are justified, it's not merely that we are forgiven, it's that we are connected to Jesus and the Father relates to us as if we have the same position of Jesus, because we do, he gives it to us. So this is, this is amazing, and this is what is so important, is this is where he starts the letter. Please hear this. Paul does not say to the people in Philippi who need to become holy enough to be called a saint. That's not what he says. He says, you are a saint. Okay, you're holy. The whole church is holy. Okay. So does that mean the next line is, so take off, eat, drink, and be merry. Don't worry about it. You got the holiness thing down. It does not matter what you do. No, he doesn't say that. He starts from the position of holiness, and he says, because that's who you are in Christ, now press into the Lord so that you can be in actuality, what he's already declared you to be. So it's our status of holiness that motiv motivates us for holiness. It's, it's kind of different, I know. But it's because God says you are holy that we want to pursue holiness knowing that with freedom, without a burden, without the pressure of I've got to achieve holiness so God will accept me. That's backwards. It's God accepts you, God declares you righteous, now go and live like that in the power of the Spirit, putting to death sin and bringing to life his righteousness. So where do we find that in the book? Well, it's all over the book. This identity of saint is all over. This identity of saint that leads us to pursue holiness. So for instance, look at chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, wait a minute. Didn't he already say we're saints? How do I work out my salvation? Well, it means to allow the salvation he's put in you to work that out into your actual character and for that to be showing up in our lives, so to speak. Verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So pursue holiness because God's working that in you. He's, God has declared you holy, and now he's working that in you, so you want to pursue that. What he's planted in you, you want to cultivate that. What he's planted in us, we want to cultivate that. So Paul doesn't say you're holy, so don't worry about it. He says you're declared holy, so in the power of the Spirit, go and live like that for the glory, uh, for the glory of God. Or another one would be in chapter 3, he says, I used to be this religious fanatic who did everything right externally. I was the top guy religion-wise, and all my righteousness was my own. Then I met Jesus, and his righteousness was mine. And all that other righteousness is rubbish. Jesus is my righteousness. And so he says that in verse 9 of chapter 3, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. So my righteousness is not because I obeyed the law. My righteousness is because Jesus obeyed the law, and I received that. I believe that about Jesus to be true for me. Okay, so I'm righteous before God because what he did. Now look what he says a few verses later in verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Because he's declared me righteous, because I'm free, because I'm accepted, because I'm welcomed, because I am his, because I'm a saint before him, because I'm in union with Christ, because God relates to me as, his, as he relates to his own son, because that is my position, I press on. It doesn't breed laziness. Legalism is when we are seeking to obey and seeking to do the right thing so that God will accept us, love us, 
approve of us. It's trying to obey the law so that God approves of us. That is not what he's talking about. Jesus strongly rejects legalism. Those are the people he's most critical of, are the legalists. That's legalism. License is, he's declared me righteous, so it does not matter what I do. It does, God doesn't care what I do. God just sees Jesus. It does not matter what I do. The biblical approach is, those are the ditches. The biblical approach is on the road. He has, is in the center of the road. He has declared me righteous, and it is really believing that. I want to ensure that we really, that we really get that as our core identity. It's, it's vital that we see our identity as righteous in Christ. That I am righteous in Christ, that my position is secure, that there is no condemnation for me. And when I really breathe that in or receive that, it motivates me to want to honor the Lord with my life, to want to love others just as we read in this book. So it's obedience that is empowered by the Spirit from a position of secure righteousness. That, that's really what it is, and that's what we see throughout this letter. But aren't we sinners? Yes, we are saints and we are sinners. Don't we battle the flesh? Yes, we do. But I believe our core identity, if I had to pick a core, if you ask Paul what his core identity is, it would be declared righteous in Christ. That's who we are, that's our fundamental position. We sin, we battle the flesh, so it's right to say that we're sinners as well, because sinners sin. But we're not sinners in the sense that, that, that God is holding us as believers accountable for our sin to judge us with eternal wrath in hell. We're freed from his eternal judgment, declared righteous. We battle sin, um, but we battle sin as those who are declared righteous. That, that's what I think is really important to get, is that we battled sin as those who are declared righteous. So Paul could say he's a sinner, and he's saying, he could say he's, he's got the spirit and he battles the flesh in Galatians. He could say both, but he's wanting to see that they start with, we start with our position and not our performance. We start with our position. What's their position? Saints in Christ Jesus. That's who they are, and that's how, he, that's how they press on. Catch what else he says. I don't have time to develop this, but he also says to the saints who are in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. So you are in the middle of the world. You have a location. You are in Philippi. You live in a culture that does not believe in Jesus. You live in a culture that worships idols. You are there in Philippi. You don't walk out your Christian faith hidden. You don't walk out your Christian faith isolated. This is not a protectionist mentality where we don't want to touch or see or hear anyone in the world. You are in Philippi. You are in the world, but you are not of the world. The saint is, lives in a different, is separated, is a different kind of person, but is separated and thrown in the midst of the world. So that when a community of saints together honors the Lord and loves others, those around see that and are either drawn to Jesus or repelled either way. But they see Christ through his people. So they are at Philippi. And throughout Paul's letters, throughout the New Testament, there is not a bunker down mentality. Um, there, there is, holiness is not just defensive. We tend to think of holiness as a defense. But holiness is also an offense. It is pursuing. It is, uh, it, it is, uh, it is being involved in the world so that our light shines. We don't hide our light under a shade, a lampshade. Uh, but a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, Jesus says. So this, these saints are to be seen. They are to be the aroma of Christ. They are to be the light of Christ that represent him. Where? In Philippi. So they're rooted on the ground. 
They're not all living in a commune up in a mountain, just being holy unto themselves. It's a holiness that touches the world. Where do we see that? Just read the Gospels. That's Jesus. Jesus isn't isolated. Um, Jesus is among people reflecting the Father. And lastly, grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is Jesus giving his life for us so that we could have relationship with God because of what he has done for us. We see that in chapter two. So I'm kind of giving you these verses. Why am I reading all these verses? Because I'm, I'm trying to show how the trajectory, how the direction of these statements are fleshed out in the rest of the letter. Uh, chapter two, verse six, who, speaking of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, uh, uh, or bond servant, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's grace. Grace is God Almighty became a man and took our sins upon himself, died. He was innocent and he died for the guilty. That's grace. That's grace. So grace to you. You're saints, why? Because of grace. And so when we think of being a slave of Christ, it's a, it's a, it's a, high, it's a high title. It's a great privilege. It's a great honor to be a servant of Christ because of what he has done for us. And he showed his love for us and he welcomed us. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace as well. Peace is a big theme in this book. Why, why we see this early on. Peace is a big theme for a number of reasons. Number one, we have peace with God. If you're a Christian today, you have peace with God. Secondly, in Christ, we have peace. There is an inner peace that we can have, an internal peace. To know Jesus and to have receive the Holy Spirit as we become a believer is to give us power to not live with constant torment but to live with peace. That shows up. So he's saying grace and peace to you. He's going to come back to it. Look in chapter 4, 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's, it's a picture of a guard, a guard outside the door protecting so here's what he's saying is, hey, cast your care on him, pray. He loves you. You're his. You don't have to live enslaved to the world. You're his servant. You are his. So you cast all your cares, your burdens, your worries, your fears. You tell Christ about them and ask him to take it. And he's going to set up a guard outside of your heart and mind. And it's called the peace of God. So he comes back to that. That's a big thing. He's not just saying, okay, you know, take this down. Dear Philippians, uh, Peace. Yeah, that'd be, no, he's going to talk about that. Each of these are talked about. It's the subject line of the email. So throughout the letter, he's going to say, how do you live joyfully in suffering? By being a slave of Christ. How do you grow in holiness and how do you live for the Lord? By being secure in your identity that you're saints of God. That's the motivation. And how do, you, how do you walk through all of the various challenges in our roles, in our lives, and in all that we're called to do? Well, you live in the grace of God, 
and you receive peace. You have peace with God. There's an inner peace. And by the way, that peace is needed in the church as well. He's going to actually call two people out by name. Talk about getting your name. Like when I was in school, you got your name written on the board. Euodia and Syntyche get their name written in the Bible. It says, tell these ladies to get along. Can they please get along? So, so, why, so they need to know about peace. That there can be peace for the people of God. What? Never apart from Christ. But we can have peace together. How will we have peace together? Well, if we're all looking to Christ and receiving his grace. If we're all looking to Christ as the one who justified us, and therefore we're motivated to grow based on what he's done for us, we want to live in a way that honors him, motivated by his great love for us. And if we all say, I'm a slave of Christ, I don't get to get my way and control you and make you do what I want to do and withdraw from you when you don't. Uh, uh, you're not my slave. I'm Christ's slave. You're Christ's slave. So we got to submit ourselves to him. That brings tremendous peace to one another. If we're all submitted to him, there will be peace. So that's why peace is important. Inner peace, peace with God, peace with one another because of the grace of God. Well, that's what he says to them at the beginning, and that those themes will be found throughout the book, and that's really where joy comes. I'm going to close today by inviting, uh, in a minute I'm going to ask the prayer team to come up, but just inviting you to come and receive prayer if you'd like. I mean, I, I read this, I was thinking, about it, it's just kind of an introduction, but the more I looked at it, I thought, man, there are, this stimulates all kinds of need for prayer, because some of us don't have peace in the room. And chapter four is going to say, if you want peace, if you need peace, then you need to Cast your care. You need to ask him. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer. You need to let your requests be known to God by prayer. So if you have an inner turmoil, if you're controlled by depression, fear, anxiety, worry, panic, uh, bitterness, if, if there's something that just stirs you and you need to be free from that, um, the place to go, I don't mean to be overly simplistic, but the place to go is Christ. Now, there may be more to just turn to him. You may need some personal help to walk that through, and we'd be glad to help you. But for this morning, we just want to pray peace to your heart and your soul and your mind. Or maybe you're at odds with someone. You need peace. You need the Lord to help you show, how can I get reconciled? It's like this. You know, how can we get back together? You need reconciliation with someone. Um, then that's kind of peace. Or maybe you never have believed in Jesus do you know what? You are at war with God. You may not know that, but you have made yourself an enemy with God because you've disobeyed his word. So did I, so did all of us. We disobey his word, we make ourselves his enemy. The Bible says that he makes us friends when we believe in Jesus. So if you need forgiveness for your sins, you've never trusted Christ, then you need peace with God. You should come here and ask someone, how can I have my sins forgiven? How can I get a clean conscience? How can I become a new person? By believing, turning from sin, and believing in Christ, then you'll get peace with God. So that's peace with God, peace with one another, peace in our own souls. Some of us live in a, out of an identity. Uh, we don't, we're not aware that God declares us holy. We, we live out of an identity of always trying to perform so that God will accept us. Always trying to perform so that God will love us. If that's you, let us pray for you. Let us pray that your identity in Christ would be rooted deeply and that you'd be secure in the Father's love and adoption of you as his child and in your own being declared righteous and justification. And then some of us just don't really live as a slave of, of Christ. That's not our identity. We're living as a slave to all other kinds of things. Money, power, sex, relationship, romance, 
leisure, comfort, food, drugs, alcohol. Um, it could be any number of things that these things enslave us. And you say, I don't want to be a slave to that. Jesus gave his life for me. I want to be enslaved to him, which is a good thing, beautiful thing, wonderful thing. I want to be free. I want to live under Christ so that I'm free. You come forward and we'll pray for you. So look, I read this intro. I go, man, there is like a billion prayer needs that just come up in these two verses if we think about what they mean. So we'd love to pray for you. So let's stand together. And I'm going to ask those who on our prayer team, if you could come down forward, be available. And I'm going to pray to close us. And then uh, we'll just, they'll be available. You come forward for prayer uh, as, we enter, as we close this service. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.